Young people in Montana just won a major climate lawsuit, arguing the state had violated their right to a healthy environment. I had the pleasure to speak to today's guest prior to the Montana court decision. He's a young organizer and school board member in Boise, Idaho, who has taken Greta Thunberg's global call to act like our house is on fire to heart, paving the way for a new generation of climate champions. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. This is our Children Can't Wait, a podcast about the systems and structures that keep our kids from flourishing. Our Children Can't Wait is also a book from Teachers College Press, available for purchase from Amazon. And if you're new to the Our Children Can't Wait podcast, please take a minute, follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Several decades ago, or so, I went on a camping trip after finishing high school with two of my closest friends to Catalina Island, just off the California coast. School board member and climate activist Shiva Rajmandari took a very different kind of senior trip in his Toyota Prius. My name is Shiva Rajmandari. I just graduated high school here in Boise, Idaho, 18 years old. I use him pronouns, and I like to run, I like to fish. Basically do anything outside, ski, camp, all the things. Congratulations, one, on graduating, two, for being on the school board, and for making it to summer when you can have some fun in Idaho. When we first met, you had shared that you had a, a lot of graduations to attend. So what, what's it been like since we've spoken the last few weeks? What have you been up to? It's been a busy last few weeks. We had grad parties like crazy at my own graduation, <laughs> and then the last... 10 days. I just got back on Sunday from going to all 44 Idaho counties trying to interview people in each county about climate change. I think there's a big lack of engagement with folks in, in rural areas on climate. It was really interesting, but it was it was quite the journey. It was very intense driving to like, you know, up to like seven counties a day, all of the state in my little Prius with my friends. So, so you interviewed people in 44 counties across Idaho. Yeah. And why did you do that? Really, we were trying to understand how have Idahoans experienced climate change. Mm. And maybe they don't call it climate change or maybe they don't know what climate change is, but mm. pretty much everyone we spoke to had experienced change in, in the climate and, and it had affected them in some way. One of the things we talked a lot about was the increase in fires and mm. how wildfire smoke is affecting folks. We spoke to kids with asthma or parents who had a respiratory illness. And then also we had this record winter this last uh, winter in, in Idaho. And so we saw record amounts of snow, and which was great for our watersheds. But now all that snow is melting very quickly as temperatures have risen very, very fast um, all across the state, which is causing a lot of flooding. Um, and it was really interesting. I, was, I think I was really surprised. A lot of folks either didn't know what climate change was or, you know, we would ask, how has climate change impacted you? And folks would say, I don't think it's impacted me. Even mm. the folks who cared very deeply about climate change say, I don't think it's impacted me. And then we'd say, well, one thing climate scientists are saying is that Idaho is seeing a, an increase in wildfires and a, a lengthening of the wildfire season as temperatures rise and it, the climate grows drier 
all across the state. Mm -hmm. Has that affected you? And then every single person was like, oh, yeah, it's like gotten way smokier in the summer and it's hard to breathe. And, you know, sometimes we have uh, we have to stay inside or we have sports practices that are canceled. It was really interesting. I'm just so curious about this. Some people graduate from high school. They go on a trip. <laughs> you got in your Prius and you drove across the state. So what fueled the Shiva listening tour? Was it just mere curiosity? Is it part of your statewide work? Like what got you going? I think it was mostly curiosity. And I think, you know, we recorded all the all the videos and, and they'll, they'll make great campaign videos because I think national listeners know this is Idaho is is traditionally portrayed as this very conservative state where we can't talk about common sense issues, where all hope is lost, right? Mm. And I fundamentally believe that that's not the case. I mean, I've seen firsthand that that's not the case where I live here in Boise. But I think talking to folks around the state really helped me understand that it's not the case anywhere. And that the legislators who represent Idaho, both in Congress and um, in our state legislature, really don't represent the top issues that that Idahoans are talking about. And this kind of culture war politics that's permeated our state hmm. is not doing anyone any good. Hmm. And so it, it was just really neat. Hopefully we'll be able to use some of the interviews, um, which they were random interviews. We weren't like specifically targeting like liberals. We just pulled people off the street. Hmm. But hopefully we'll be able to use those going forward in, in certain campaigns and, and media work. Um, and also it was nice to really develop this network of folks around the state who are interested. One of the things we prioritized is we set a minimum of interviewing three people in each county. And one of those people had to be under 18 because mm. we really wanted to connect with what younger generations were experiencing and also with the, the state of climate education mm. in Idaho. And it was it was a little bit mundane. A lot of the folks we talked to did not know what climate change was, even if they were 17, 16, mm. which is unfortunate. But those who did, you know, many of them were right on the nail as far as rejecting this whole greenwashed lie about recycling and about this individual responsibility that I think, you know, some folks try to often push on us. And we heard time and time again, you know, climate change is, is fueled by corporate lies. Um, and we even heard that from climate deniers, which is funny. But I think there's been a big reckoning across our state and probably across the country with the reality that climate change is a systemic issue and it's something that we need to solve systemically and we need to hold our leaders and corporations accountable for their actions. So Shiva right now, as I'm sure you know, there's a big climate trial in Montana and the plaintiffs involve young people ages five to 22 saying that the state of Montana has violated their constitutional right to a healthy, healthy life, essentially a healthy, clean environment. I know Montana is just right next door to, to Idaho. What does this mean for your work as you're following this this really big story? I think that's huge. And I, I know the many of the youth who've been working on that, you know, were 12 when that started and now they're, you know, they've graduated high school or even college, some of them. That's how long uh, this has taken, which I think really points to a failure in the judicial system because those lawsuits are about holding our government accountable and about putting corporations and climate deniers and big money interests on trial. And I think that's so exciting. And I think that again shows that, you know, what we're seeing around the country is climate change is not about the freaking polar bears anymore, right? Mm. It's about real people. And it's about the fundamental rights of children, the fundamental rights of the elderly, 
uh, disabled folks, folks in the global south, everyone, everybody is affected by climate change and everyone's rights are being deprived hmm. by our leaders' unwillingness to break up with the fossil fuel industry, by our leaders' failure to, to stand up for the planet on which we live and the people who elected them. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's telling that this is not coming from, you know, liberal California or Hawaii or, you know, some dark blue state. This is coming from Montana, which is a working class state where people have seen some of the first and foremost effects of, of climate change in this country. This is kind of a, a humble, humble humble brag, but AOC reposted when I when I got elected to the school board. Mm-hmm. She said, organize everywhere because you never know where you'll win hmm. or, or something like that. And I think that is, that's what the future of this movement looks like, right? We are not just organizing in the liberal states, we are organizing all across the globe because we have no other choice. This is not a culture war issue. This is not a, an issue of convenience. This is an issue that we must address now. And so I'm so excited to see what comes from the youth of cases. Our Children Can't Wait is the book I wrote. I made this podcast to further the conversation with you. Maybe you're an administrator, a school counselor, maybe a parent. Maybe you make policy at the state level or the local level, or maybe you just want to learn more about this topic. So we can keep the conversation going, please send me an email at joe at ourchildrencantwait.com. I'd love to hear from you. Our Children Can't Wait is a production sponsored by the Center for the Transformation of Schools at UCLA, and the book is published by Teachers College Press. Funding for today's show comes from the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. And if you haven't clicked follow on the podcast, please do it now. Rate and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Shiva and I covered a lot in our conversation, including the historic climate trial that's going on now in Montana, Idaho's next door neighbor. Young people in that case, ages 2 to 18, are asking the state court to declare that a stable climate is a fundamental protection of their rights to a clean and healthful environment. I've trained and worked with many school board members across the country. Few board members are fresh out of high school, but Shiva is more seasoned than you'd think. He represents a new generation of policymakers that have been heavily involved in policy change on tough issues like student mental health and the climate crisis long before he campaigned to join the school board. So Shiva, when you ran for school board, what did it mean to win? And what does it mean to win now for you? I think the campaign was really just the beginning. For me, winning on the school board means passing a long-term sustainability plan for the Boise School District. Winning means uh, investing in mental health resources for all students to meet the the mental health needs that have never been met in our K-12 system. Mm. Winning means establishing a student position on the board and showing what it means for students to be at the table everywhere decisions are being made mm-hmm. with regards to their education. Mm-hmm. The night of the election was, was certainly a, a highlight, mm. but we're far from winning in this campaign. Mm. What fuels you to keep going? I mean, knowing how much work is ahead I mean, it was a huge deal just to get elected. You had been doing work for years. 
as a young person prior to being elected, again, what keeps you going every day? I don't keep going every day. I think that's one thing I've been working on is really taking time to rest. And I think that's so important in, mm. in these spaces because what the fossil fuel industry wants is for us to deplete ourselves, right? We can't model our resistance on the very same systems of oppression that allowed this exploitive industry to to exist and to come to dominance in our politics. Um, and so I, I do take time to rest, right? I take weekends off. I mm. make sure I'm getting eight hours of sleep and drinking water and, and spending time with my friends. But what keeps me motivated, what keeps me in this fight mm-hmm. is all the people around me. I've never done anything myself. Um, I've always had so many folks all around me who deserve so much more of the recognition for the work that we've been able to accomplish together. You know, my campaign involved over 100 volunteers, mostly students um, from my high school and surrounding high schools who wanted to see a student on the school board. It involved several hundred donors who supported me. And my activism works very similar, where most everything I do is 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 with a team. I think it's it's their passion and their commitment that reminds me why we're fighting for this, right? We're fighting for our lives, but what do our lives mean? And it's it's seeing the faces of my friends and, and seeing the the faces of resistance that remind me what they really mean. That's a, a great response <laughs> to my question about going, 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 going every day. Point point taken <laughs> to you, point taken. So I'm always fascinated by what influences people have in their lives to do what they do. Who has really inspired you to get into this space of education justice, climate justice, youth organizing, to jump into the hotly political space, which most people will run to the hills from. In terms of your life and your development, who, who really inspired you to, to get into this space? There's been a lot of folks. You know, I think about my parents who, mm-hmm. you know, really have made something for themselves. My dad who came from Nepal with like, literally with like, two cents in his pocket and spent his first like night in the U S like sleeping on a park bench, <laughs> which I think is great. But I think really more than anything, it's my teachers. It's the folks mm. in the public school system who, sh- who show me how much we have worth fighting for. And that's not to say that I'm indoctrinated. I'll, although some, some can claim it, <laughs> but my, my teachers every day, kindergarten through 12th grade have, have told me and all my peers your voice has power. You can make a difference. Mm. And all it takes is, is one spark. All it takes is one voice mm-hmm. to ignite a movement. I guess to my credit, I believe them. And, and I think that's why we're seeing these attacks on public education is not because teachers are teaching communism, but it's because teachers are teaching us that to, to advocate for ourselves. They're, they're giving us agency and empowerment. And with that comes the realization that we deserve more. With that comes the realization that we have these ideals to which we pledge allegiance every morning in the classroom that then we're not upholding and that that have never been upheld for the last 250 years, right? You know, the ideals of equality and justice for all, the ideals of, of liberty and autonomy. And when we're given the ability to think critically about, about that, and when we understand the meaning of those words, it's dangerous, right? It's dangerous for the establishment. I think people say no one will ever give you the education to, to overthrow them. And I think that's, I mean, that's generally true. And that's why we as at the Sunrise Movement and in all our work, you know, we'd spend a lot of time 
you know, training folks and bringing folks in. But truly, I think public education is such a cornerstone of our country and it is such a, a thing that has moved us forward and, and allowed us to be successful in large part because we do give people enough education to overthrow their systems. I think that's honestly made us more invested in those systems in some ways, and then recognize when other systems need to need to be dissolved. But yeah, it's it's teachers, and I, and it, and it's my friends. It's it's definitely a culture of empowerment that we see at at my high school and all across the world um, in my generation. Um, and I think that's in large part thanks to you know the myriad of of crises that that are impending on us at this moment. For folks who aren't familiar, what is the Sunrise Movement? So the Sunrise Movement is a youth-led organization fighting for climate justice and equity. And it really got its start around 2018, um, fighting for a Green New Deal, which we're still fighting for. But legitimately, like we would not have the Inflation Reduction Act if it weren't for the organizing that the Sunrise Movement and other youth organizations did uh, and have continued to do across the country. And so right now, I'm on team fighting for a Green New Deal for schools, um, which is super exciting. It's uh, landmark investments in clean energy and equity in public education that, that we've never seen from the federal government and local campaigns as well. But I think one of the things that's really incredible about a lot of youth organizing and, and Sunrise is, is no exception is this commitment to social justice. And you talked about you know all these issues that I'm fighting for and that um, and I th I'm sure you interview a lot of youth activists who are similarly fighting for a lot of issues. And that's because I think our generation has recognized that these are not isolated issues, right? When we preach solidarity, when we say, you know, we need to fight for the rights of everybody, all means all, right? We can't neglect one issue. We can't say we are fighting climate change if at the same time, you know, we're not addressing the root causes of climate change, which are capitalism and exploitation, colonization dating back to Columbus and the slave trade, right? That's why I love working with the Sunrise Movement. And that's why I love working in, in youth organizing and youth activism spaces is because we don't do any of that greenwashing bullshit. We, we focus on the real issues, which is that people deserve to be able to live, right? And people deserve good jobs and uh, healthcare and autonomy and a sense of self-respect. And I think that fight, fighting the climate crisis is an essential component in that, but it's not everything. One of the themes of Our Children Can't Wait um, as a book and even as a show here is the intersectional nature of policy, which is what you just talked about, that it really is life and death for our planet. It's life and death for humanity board member, Raj Bhandari, how do we get more school board members to see these issues as central to their role on the school board? I think that's a great question. And, you know, before I was a school board member, I led this campaign for almost three years, working for a clean energy commitment and long-term sustainability plan for a school district. And it was hard because I think there is this idea somehow that Public education should, you know, just be focused on math and, and reading, which are essential, but we need to be prepared to, to face these crises, right? And we need to recognize that public schools are essential in that clean energy transition. I think 
in order to get more school board members and more local elected officials to realize that they have a responsibility to take action on the climate crisis, regardless of whether they're running the EPA or not, right? This is this is a system-wide issue. We need system-wide solutions. I think it's it's accountability. Accountability from students often is is a very powerful driver of climate action because you know we know Gen Z cares by far the most about climate change and about confronting systems of oppression. And so I think, you know, things like lowering the voting age are a great way to to do that. Um, but also I think it it's empowering the students in your life to to act and to demand more. I'm very lucky because I I've had people all throughout my life who've told me like you're on the right track, you're doing it, you know, you you're a disruptor and you are like you're succeeding, right? Mm. And every student, I think, deserves the same upbringing that I've had, right? The same uh, empowerment and sense of agency that I've been given in public schools, but also in my, in my home life. I think we need student-led campaigns all across the country, and we need bold leadership, and we need to normalize insurgencies at our schools, right? We need students walking out. We need students locking the doors. We need students banging on the windows, demanding to be heard. And then we need parents and we need folks who aren't students to stand in solidarity with young people, right? And solidarity means, you know, more than just a high five um, when you see someone cool from a youth climate activist. Solidarity often means challenging your own, you know, personal understandings of, of age and deconstructing this idea that young people aren't qualified or capable of, of leadership. And I think we saw that a lot with, with my campaign is, I, I guess I, I couldn't say I was shocked, but I was, I was hurt that you know, many of the Democratic legislators and many of the local elected officials in my area, even my teachers union, supported a candidate who they knew aligned far less with their views because they didn't think that any student and mind you, I, I mean, I'm a very qualified student for that role. I've been doing a lot of, of work in the community, far more than many of the other board members. But they didn't believe that any student was capable of, of leading and serving on a school board or providing real valuable feedback on, on legislation. That spoke volumes to me about those individuals' commitments to solidarity, right? Um, do you practice what you preach? And so I think funding Gen Z-led campaigns you know, funding the youth organizers in your area. And if they don't have a GoFundMe, reach out and ask them, hey, how can I support the work that you're doing? I think that's my call to action for older listeners. We've discussed in the previous episode the importance of youth organizing and leadership in the policymaking process. But Shiva got me thinking more about what adults are really afraid of. It's young people like him. So, Shiva, what are the underlying fears keeping adults from believing that young people can lead? I think there's a lot. You know, this is something that's kind of embedded into our culture of like children should be seen and not heard. And I think it's like a, a language problem, too. I know the way I communicate is very different from the way my fellow trustees communicate. It's well known that semantics are... are frequently used to, to oppress 
folks and hold folks back. And I think it's also, you know, the institutional factors that we have where students are deprived of a right to vote and young people tend not to vote often because of voter suppression, right? Children are, are far more likely to be poor than the general public. And so it really is intertwined with, with many of the other issues, you know, which seems to be a common theme here because it is. But I, th I think it's, it's something that like we really need to deconstruct, right? Because if the election of, of Donald Trump says anything, it, it shows that if anyone's not qualified to be choosing our leaders, if anyone's not qualified to be leading our country and making the decisions that that will shape our future, it's not young people. It's like folks over 60. <laughs> Those are the folks who are turning out for fascism. Those are the folks who are are turning out, you know, often with little understanding uh, of the issues. And I'm not I'm not arguing for voter suppression of anyone, but I'm saying, you know, we got to we got to set a common standard, right? If if you're saying that young people are too naive to vote or, or too inexperienced to, to serve, I think the same standard needs to be held of old people too. So yeah, that's my hot take on that. Shiva said it best, and he said it in many different ways. There's room for all of us. All of us to take on the fight of the climate crisis, regardless of race, age, income, or political persuasion. From his perspective, everyone can agree the climate crisis has impacted them, even in picturesque places like Idaho. And school boards, schools, and young leaders like Shiva are central to getting our planet back on track. I'm curious, what's the one thing you want folks to take away from our conversation today? When we act as a collective, no matter who we are, no matter what our background is, we are always stronger. And, you know, over the last year or so, I've given a lot of interviews and, and been celebrated a lot. But really, the fight against climate change, the fight against all systems of oppression is a team fight. And it's a fight that is grounded in solidarity. And I hope folks take away that, you know, more powerful than hate, more powerful than ignorance, more powerful than all the money that fossil fuel corporations and, and evil people are spending in our politics, more powerful than all those things is solidarity with one another. And it's this commitment to believing that a better future is possible, even when all the signs point otherwise. And so I hope folks recognize that, you know, you don't have to be the loudest voice in the room to make a difference, but you do have to be heard. And I would urge anyone, and this is my always, my call to action is, is get involved, right? And reach out and find out who's doing that work in your community and join them. And I think the most beautiful thing about the fight against the climate crisis is that it is so open. We don't just need one type of person. We need everybody in this fight. We need rich donors. We need, you know, loud voices. We need writers and we need scientists and we need educators and we need engineers and we need everybody in this fight. There is room for you, regardless of your age, your gender, your race, 
you are welcome in this fight and there are groups that are already fighting alongside you. So I would urge folks to find those groups and get involved. Well, if you were sitting when you started, you're probably standing now, or if you weren't listening, you're listening harder. Thanks to Shiva Rajbandari, board member, activist, leader in Boise, Idaho. As you've, you've heard today, the S word, solidarity, solidarity and hope. And uh, Boise, Idaho, Helena, Montana are really the, the places that will determine the future for the climate crisis. It's not an, an abstract idea or concept. And uh, Shiva, I just want to thank you for your time. It's been such an honor to be with you. And um, I've learned a lot from you. I've learned some new terminology. And also, as a dad and educator, I feel compelled to take some of your messages away and, and think about what, what I can do here at UCLA. So I just want to thank you for your time. Thank you, Joe. You're already doing it, man. This podcast, this book, everything. Thank you. Organizations like the Sunrise Movement, which Shiva is a part of, represents climate justice organizations led by young people who need you to support their cause and for you to find a way to get involved. This is Our Children Can't Wait. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. Our Children Can't Wait is a podcast by the Center for the Transformation of Schools and the School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. Support for today's show is provided by the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. Elizabeth Windham is the producer. Julia Windham is the associate producer. Geneva Sum is the creative director. Senior producer is Jay Woodward. Our Children Can't Wait is the companion to the book of the same name, Our Children Can't Wait, available now on Teachers College Press and Amazon. Our Children Can't Wait is produced by Windhaven Productions and Blue Jay Atlantic.